Three guys are walking through the woods. They're hiking. They come across this raging river, and they have no idea how they're going to get across the river. The first guy looks up to heaven, and he prays, Oh God, make me strong enough to cross this river. Poof. God gives him gigantic muscular arms, gigantic muscular legs. You can look here if you need a visual. These are all natural, no steroids. Guy swims across the river, capsized, almost drowns, but he makes it. Second guy looks up to heaven and says, Oh God, please give me the right tools to cross this river. Poof. God gives him a rowboat. He starts rowing across that river, waves her white cap and almost capsizes, but he makes it. Third guy looks up to heaven and says, oh God, please make me smart enough to figure out how to get across this river. Poof. God turns him into a woman. She pulls out a map and finds a bridge five minutes upstream and takes the bridge to cross the river, right? (laughs) We get some of y'all that excited about God, we'd be doing all right. Hey, here's the deal. I believe God desires, and I think it's Gary's heart, that this series you guys are kicking off, Real AF, would be a bridge between who we pretend to be and who people expect us to be and who we really are. So I've got a picture I want you to see, and some of you are old enough like me to remember this picture. 2014, Ellen takes what became one of the most famous selfies of all time. Time Magazine called this one of the most influential images of all time. Ellen DeGeneres and Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper and Julia Roberts and Brad Pitt and Kevin Spacey and Angelina Jolie. There's a lot of drama in there, right? You, you remember, made, they say it made Samsung over a hundred or over a billion dollars just out from this selfie, right? This is part of what popularized the whole selfie culture. And so I've got, I've got two teenage or two daughters who, who cheer. I've got four kids all together, which Jim Gaffigan says having four kids is like you're drowning. Then somebody hands you another baby. I got four kids or four of the prettiest cappuccino colored babies you will ever see in your life. But my girls cheer. And so we were at Sequoia game the other night and I want to take a selfie with my daughter. And clearly I have no clue how to take a selfie because I'm a dad, right? And so I take it and then one of her friends is standing there and she's like, you want me to take that for you, (laughs) right? So she takes the picture and then they put a bunch of filters and stuff on it. And then you end up looking nothing like you really look. It's that whole cheer thing, by the way. I got two of those. I tell people cheer, like that whole cheer world is like, High School Musical, Disney High School Musical, Mean Girls, Housewives of Atlanta, and Honey Boo Boo all at the same time. That's what that world is like. Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul gives us what I call a Christian selfie. In Romans chapter 7, I think in some ways Paul's going to say, hey, don't, don't get it twisted. And here's the deal. The Apostle Paul could be, if there's even such a thing, as maybe one of the greatest Christians of all time. The Apostle Paul was used by God to write over half the New Testament. He was a guy who at one time was a Jew who killed Christians, but then God miraculously saves him, and he's used by God to lead millions, who knows, countless people to faith in Christ. And even today, we still read the things that God used Paul to write. Yet Romans chapter 7, Paul would say, don't you think I'm something I'm not? Let's read Romans chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 19, and then we're going to dig in. 
Romans chapter 7, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says this, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. (laughs) Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God in heaven, we ask you to honor your word today. In this short time we got together, God, would you help us to be honest and be real with ourselves, and be honest and real with you? And God, would you just speak and bring us to a place where we're closer to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to meet the Apostle Paul, you would say, well, Paul, surely you've, you've got it all together. I mean, you've started churches, Paul. You've been used by God to write scripture, Paul. You've led people to faith in Christ, Paul. You, you worked hard so you didn't have to take offering from the church. Paul, you surely had it all together. I think Paul says some things that those of us who are Christians, if we're honest, we'd have to agree and say the same thing as Paul. So I'm going to give you several really simple confessions of what we see when we see ourselves as Christians. Number one, I see myself as someone who doesn't always do what's right. I see myself as someone who doesn't always do the right thing. I'm not Spike Lee. I don't always do the right thing. Paul says here, for the good I do not do the good I want to do. The good that he uses there, that word describes the kind of good that's framed in a deed you would do for someone else. Loving other people, giving to other people, forgiving other people, being humble. It's praying. It's like Paul saying this, hey, don't get it twisted. Sometimes I don't give enough. I don't pray enough. I don't go enough. I don't love enough. I don't forgive enough. I don't always do all the good things I should do because to be honest, I don't want to sometimes. Years ago, people kind of, when Tim Tebow had won the Heisman and then Tebow had gone on a mission trip to the Philippines and I was listening to this radio talk show. They didn't know he was involved in missions and Tebow had just got back from the Philippines and I heard this, this talk radio talk show guy goes, Tim Tebow, I get it. You're better than me. Now go away, right? But even Tebow doesn't get it all right and he doesn't always do the right thing. So you'll hear a little bit of my story as we go through through this whole deal. It'll probably be a counseling session for me, but but I had what you call hero child issues growing up. I was a kid who always did it right, was always expected to do the right thing, and I walked to the beat of a different drummer. And so my inner critic, my inner voice would say something like this to me, you should know better. My whole life growing up as a kid, I was that kid who should know better. Everybody else gets to screw up. Everybody else gets to mess up. Everybody else, but you, you, you should know better. My guess is there's some of you in this same room in your whole life, you've kind of grown up or you did grow up in a situation where you were expected to always have it together and everyone always thought you had it together. And if you're not that kid, you're the sibling of that kid and you hate us. <laughs> 
There's a lady by the name of Brene Brown, and Brene's become popular for the stuff she's written about shame and vulnerability. And when she first started, all her stuff about the power of vulnerability was geared toward women. The, old, the idea like there's freedom in being flawed. There's freedom in just claiming your junk and letting people know what it is and moving forward. This guy comes up to Brene and he says, why don't you write stuff for men? And she says, well, I don't know. I just feel like this is where my, my niche is and this is what I'm really good at. And he said, listen to me, lady. My wife and kids would rather see me die than fall off the white horse they think I'm riding on. And there are some of us, if we're honest, we feel like the people around us and the world around us is always like, oh, you've got to always have it together. And so when we meet each other, we put on our best face and we walk in a room like this. How are you, man? Doing good. How's your week? Oh, my week is good. But in reality, it's falling apart. But what do we do? Man, we put on the face. We go through the motions. Paul says, hey, don't get it twisted. I don't always do the right thing. Nobody always gets it right. First John chapter one, verse eight says this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We don't pray enough. We don't fast enough. We don't give enough. We don't love enough. We don't always go enough. So we don't always do the right thing. Then Paul makes another statement. Here's a second confession. I see myself as someone who sometimes repeats what's wrong. He says, not only do I do the good things that I should be doing, but there's some bad things that I do, and I keep doing those bad things. Paul says in the second part of verse 19, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. I know y'all don't get all off in the grammar and stuff here, but the way he words that is it's continuous present action. I keep on doing stuff I should not be doing. You ever been caught doing the same sin more than once? <laughs> you ever said something to yourself like this? How in the world did I get here again? Paul will say in verse 14 of chapter 7, I keep doing the, th- or he keeps doing the things he hates. Not only do I keep doing stuff I don't want to do, I hate these things sometimes. One of the greatest Christians to ever live. There was a church bulletin that captured this reality in the following prayer. It said this, so far today, Lord, I've done all right. I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm very thankful for that. But in a few moments, Lord, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm going to need a lot of help. (laughs) Some of you, uh, all of you can relate to that. So a little over nine years ago, I got a phone call between two and three o'clock in the morning. It's a phone call that you never want to get. I was a pastor. I was leading urban strategies for a large denomination, had it all together. And on my caller ID, it was one of my really good friends whose wife I was having an affair with. And it was like God said, that's it. It's enough. I remember years before that, I was flying on an airplane and a book called Every Man's Battle had come out. It's basically a book saying that every guy struggles with lust and every guy struggles with temptation. And I remember thinking it wasn't so much of an arrogant position, but even as a 30-year-old guy, not that this was any of your business, I hadn't been married, I still hadn't had sex, I was still a virgin, the whole, that movie was me, 30 over, whatever it was, that was like, and I remember seeing that book cover thinking, not me, it's not my battle. Unfortunately, it eventually became my battle. Paul says, 
you know, if I'm honest, I've done some things that I should not or that I hate doing. I remember seeing a guy. Um, I mean, I remember sitting in a seminary class and a, a buddy of mine, he said to the professor, Dr. Block, I ain't always been saved and I still remember some stuff. <laughs> the Apostle Paul saying, listen, I ain't always been saved either. And I still remember some stuff. And if I'm honest, I, there's times where I repeat the wrong things. Part of my journey was going away to, uh, I chose to go away to a place called Pine Grove, which is where Tiger Woods allegedly was. When Tiger was there, a reporter asked one of the, the counselors there, the facilitators there, do you think Tiger has an addiction issue? To which the leader, the counselor there, responded this way, who cares what you call it when your house is on fire? <laughs> I still remember one of the first exercises, the first night I was there, and I, I, I wasn't there like six weeks, however long he was. I just chose to go for a week or so trying to figure out my house is on fire. What is going on? How did I get here, right? And I remember the first night, the first exercise, there were 12 guys in this little cohort, and they were doctors, lawyers, actors, Hollywood stuntmen. They were all guys who on the outside, you'd go, these guys have got it all together. And the facilitator said, tonight I want you to go back to wherever you're staying, and I want you to write your secrets. And he said, you're going to start to write your secrets. And when you do, you're going to think, oh, I'm not sure I should write that down. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, I don't know. And he said, that's exactly what you need to write down. And so, and he said, the next day we're going to come back together. We're going to get in groups of three or four, and you're going to share your secrets. I remember coming back the next day, and we shared our secrets. And the reality was, Nobody exploded, nobody blew up, and there was so much freedom for maybe the first time in my adult life, being able to say out loud, I don't have it all together. The reality is the Bible says, there's no temptation that's overtaking you except such as common to man. He's like, there's not something that you struggle with or wrestle with that somebody else hasn't struggled or wrestled with. But it also goes on to say, but God is faithful who with the temptation will make a way of escape. And it is possible to get some victory. Paul will say, I don't always do the right thing. And those of you in this room, you're not the only one who struggles with sin. It doesn't make it okay, but it is a reality. Here's the third thing I think Paul would say to us. Sometimes I don't always do what's right. Sometimes I repeat what's wrong. And sometimes, or no, and the third thing is this, I could never earn God's approval. He says in verse 24, here's his conclusion. The, one of the greatest Christians ever lived. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? He's like, I'm miserable. Not only that, he draws a word picture. And the picture is this. It's like somebody is walking around and they're dragging a dead body wrapped around their neck. Who will deliver me from this body of death, that old sinful nature that stays inside of every single person who claims to be a Christian? Paul goes, listen, I've got a battle. He's like the Christian part of me and the God part of me that wants to do the right thing battles with the old sinful flesh part of me, and it's a real battle. So Paul asks the question, 
Who's going to deliver me for this? Because I will never be good enough. I'll never have it all together this side of heaven. That picture of that dog or being dragged around or dragging that dog. So the other day I'm taking um, Gavin. He's my my nine-year-old little Derrick Henry running back. He's huge. Anyway, Gavin, I'm taking Gavin back home in the Harmony. And um, we're driving in and he thinks he sees my ex or sees his mom walking. And she's got three big dogs. Kind of, I got friends here. They got three big dogs. Their dogs' names are like Cujo, I think. Anyway, he got three big dogs. And she's walking with the dogs and blonde hair, got the hat, got the dog that looks just like Bosco. And Gavin's like, Daddy, Daddy, can, can, can we stop? Like, it's, it's mom, it's mom's mom. I'm like, all right, buddy, we'll stop. And so this lady who's been dragged by this big, huge dog, Gavin jumps out of the car, starts running down the sidewalk. He's got his arms wide open. And he runs up to this lady who is not his mom. <laughs> so I back up. I'm like, sorry, ma'am. Looked like our dog, but not our dog. Anyway, Paul says, it's like I'm, I'm being dragged around and I'm never going to be good enough. I, I, I was at a group in, um, at a local church with a group of guys. And one of the guys said this, I feel like when it comes to temptation, the church tells men, Basically, hold your breath as long as you can. And we try to hold our breath and muster all the will we can, hold our breath as long as we can. He goes, but eventually you got to come up for air. So when my sin became public, right? That's kind of the difference between me and a lot of people. It's like everybody, it's kind of that whole like when you're a kid and they tell you the scary stories. What if one day God showed every bad thing you ever did on a projector screen and everybody could see it? And then what was it? Like that's what my life felt like. It felt like the whole world knew what I'd done. When my sin became public, I felt like everyone in my life was surprised. There's not a single person that I know who walked at me and said to me, Larry, you know what? I could see there were some things about you that were a little questionable. No, nobody. I mean, completely, there was nobody said, yeah, I could see you had some pattern. I could see, no, everyone was surprised. One of my many epiphanies in that process, and we're going somewhere with this. I'm sitting in a, in a hotel room, just me and God in the dark. And my epiphany was this, the only person who wasn't surprised was God. <laughs> He was the only one, listen, he was the only one who wasn't caught off guard, who wasn't surprised. And you know what else? He was the only one whose opinion of me didn't change one single bit. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says this, but God demonstrated or proved his love for us in this, in that while we were yet Sinners, Christ died. That's the gospel. The gospel is, and why this church exists, is so that you would know God knew everything you have done, are doing, or will ever do. And he says, I love you anyway, and I love you so much, I'm willing to die to pay the penalty and the punishment that you deserve. Which leads to his fourth statement. I see myself as someone who is dependent and grateful for God's grace. He will move into verse 25 and he'll say this, 
Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. The word thanks there is a word carrots or the word grace. He says, grace be to God. And it's kind of like when you say a prayer before a meal and some people say, we're going to say grace. This is not Talladega Nights, Ricky Bobby, like baby Jesus. But this is like, he says, grace be to God. Thanks be to God. It's an expression of thankfulness and gratitude for God because he understands it's a gift that is undeserved and simply by the nature and the character and the love of God. I read an article that said this, swimming to rescue someone drowning should be the last resort. It requires swimming skills and a lot of training before doing it. This is because a drowning person is violent and may pose danger to the rescuer. They may try to climb on the rescuer to be able to breathe, which may cause them to drown too. However, if you have to swim out to rescue a drowning person, carry a towel with you or an object the victim can hold on to as you tow him to safety, ensuring that you are at a safe distance from him. And then it says this, a drowning man cannot be saved until he is utterly exhausted and ceases to make the slightest effort to save himself. And the same is true when it comes to God and biblical Christianity. Until you and I get to a place where you understand, God, I'm never going to be able to do enough. I'm never going to be good enough. The Bible says all of a sudden comes short of the glory of God. The Bible says our righteous is as filthy rags of God. Until I get to a place where I admit, God, I can't without you. I cannot be saved. And here Paul is, one of the greatest Christians of all times. He said, listen, I'm telling you, it's not because I studied enough. It's not because I'm religious enough. It's not because I showed up at church or synagogue enough. It's simply because of the grace of God, and I'm grateful for his grace. God doesn't owe you squat. That's Greek. You can look it up later. God doesn't owe you breath to breathe. God doesn't owe us a decent place to live. God doesn't owe us love. God doesn't owe us friends. God doesn't owe us a job. God God doesn't owe us anything. Every single thing that we have is a gift of his grace. And knowing that should transform and change the way that we live. Listen here, here are children, the pressure's off. It's not about showing daddy that you learned how to tie your shoes or you got your math whiz cards right anymore. It's just not. It's about accepting his grace and then living a grateful life. Here's the last thing that I'm done. You're lucky we're not at a black church. We'd go till three. Number five. I see myself as someone who is free to choose God's best. So Paul does this whole like, I don't do what I should do and I keep doing what I shouldn't do. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? I'm grateful for grace. And listen, he goes right into Romans chapter 8. And those of you who know your Bibles, Romans chapter 8, it starts off, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. The checklist, the religious list, the stuff, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends, Romans chapter 8 ends this way, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So there's a problem. The problem is, well, if it's all grace, I can do what I want, right? 
Because even when I'm a good little boy, the good stuff, my righteousness is filthy rags, God. I can't even be good enough. Even if I'm not doing the bad stuff, I'll never be good enough. So it's, it's grace. So I should be able to go and do whatever I want, right? Well, Paul will say earlier in Romans, shall I go on sinning that grace may abound? May abound? He'll say, by no means. He says, no way. I'll tell you this, the church in Corinth, the church in Corinth had, Paul will say to the church in Corinth, Y'all are doing stuff that even the pagans aren't doing. They had temple prostitutes. You could go to church and get a prostitute in Corinth. Sleeping with in-laws, crazy stuff. And Paul knows knows that you can conclude, well, if it's grace, then I can do what I want. And here's what Paul says to the church in Corinth. You say you have the liberty to do all things, and you're right. However, all things are not profitable or edible. First Corinthians chapter 10, 23. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do everything, but not everything is constructive. Paul's like, you're right. Technically, legally, if you're born again, if you're regenerated, if Christ lives in you, you've been a recipient of God's grace, then you're right. Technically, you have the liberty of freedom to do whatever you want. It's his righteousness in you. But he goes, but not everything builds up and not everything edifies. Did God forgive me for what I did? Absolutely. And he cast it as far as the east is from the west. He cast it in the sea of forgetfulness. God will never hold what I did against me again because Christ's righteousness has been put into my bank account. Was what I did destructive? Yeah. Was it beneficial? Nah. Paul says, you know what? Sometimes I, I don't want to do the good things I should do. You know what? Sometimes I still don't want to do the good things I, want to, I should do. And then Paul says, you know what else? Sometimes I keep doing bad stuff. You know what? Because it's kind of what I want to do. <laughs> so what does that mean? What do I pray? God, change my desires. Because I want you want. And I want your best. I believe with all my heart, God's way of doing money, God's way of doing finances, God's way of doing family, God's way of doing life, God's way of doing community, I believe with all my heart is better than the world's way. That's my desire. And that was Paul's desire. Listen, you're grown. When you were a kid, I I got a nine-year-old, Gavin. I still have to tell Gavin to make his bed. I still have to tell Gavin to brush his teeth. And reality is, I still have to tell him to make sure he wipes his butt good, right? I just, I just. And your parents did too when you were a kid. But guess what? You're grown now. You don't have to brush your teeth anymore. You don't have to make your bed anymore. You don't have to wipe your butt anymore. But I hope you do. Because <laughs> you know it's best. Some of you are familiar with the story of the prodigal son. Jesus tells this parable to help us understand what God the Father is like. He has two sons. One son says, Dad, go ahead and give me my inheritance now before you die. Give it to me now. And he does. And this one son goes out and he's with prostitutes. He's running the streets. He's straight up. He was down in the A doing his thing, right? He's... The other son stays home and he's the hero child. 
And he's doing everything daddy wants him to do. And he's trying to follow all the rules. And he's the good little boy. If I'm honest, I feel like I've been both. The prodigal son comes home. The father runs out to meet him. Say, make the best meal. Kill the fatted calf. Put the king's robe on him. Get the best ring and put it on him. My son has come home. And then the good little boy is bothered because his dad has shown the other brother grace, just like some of you are bothered when God shows some of us grace. And what does the father say to the good little boy? Son, everything in my house is yours. And it's not because you're a good little boy or a bad little boy. It's because I love you. And God says to you and me, listen, if you're a believer, everything in my house is yours. Now it's your choice whether you're going to come back in the house and do it my way. You're going to go outside the house and try to do it your way. I close with this. Last uh, years ago, a guy commissioned a man to paint a picture of the story I just told you, the prodigal father. The man painted a beautiful portrait. The, 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 port, or the painting is set at just outside what would be the father's house. And it's a picture of the father with his arms open wide, running to his prodigal son coming home. The man who commissioned this painting to be painted, he takes a look at it, he loves it, he loves it, and then he notices something. He notices that the father's shoes don't match. One is red and one is blue. And he says to the painter, how could this be? How could you make such a mistake? And the painter says, uh, you know, this is a beautiful representation of the love of God. The man who commissioned the painting said, what do you mean? And he asked, and the painter said this, the father in this picture was not interested in being color coordinated or fashion conscious when he went out to meet his son. In fact, he was in such a hurry to show his love to his son, he simply reached and grabbed the nearest two shoes that he could find. And the painting is called The God of the Unmatched Shoes. And I'm telling you, when you and I turn by faith to God and say, God, I bring you me with all my junk and I place my faith in you and what you did for me, and we come running home, he comes running for us, unmatched shoes, because he delights in showing us mercy.